Hi, everybody. Juliet here with just a quick note about today's bonus episode before we get started. In our discussion of Midnight Mass Episode 5, you're going to hear Teresa and I talk about prioritization when it comes to police protection. Uh, Who does law enforcement prioritize when it comes to rescuing, saving, investigating, etc., and the issues surrounding that. We recorded this as with all of our episodes ahead of time, and so the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, and the police negligence surrounding that tragedy had not happened yet. So you're not going to hear us talk about that in today's episode. We wanted to acknowledge that um, these issues as they relate to mass shootings are very important to both of us uh, as two people from a community that experienced a mass shooting in 2019. Uh, So we didn't want you to think that we were ignoring a very important issue at hand. It just hadn't happened yet. As with all of our episodes, you can find further content warnings in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening on with our episode. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are back with another bonus episode. It's time for more Midnight Mass. Woo woo! Episode 5. Episode five, uh, stuff is happening. Yeah, this one, I have so many notes because it's so representational. There's so much like brain stuff happening, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) which I know is like the least eloquent way of putting that. But like a lot of more metaphoric and like philosophical questions being asked and answered. And we're getting more of the sense of how Father Paul is actually thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, the hoops that he's had to jump through in order to get himself to where he is in episode five, it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. This is, like, episode four was a lot of action, Mm -hmm. and this is a lot of conversation and reaction to the action. Like, there's not a lot of, like, straight-up action, but there's a lot of reflecting on the action that has happened and occurred. The entire episode is couched in a conversation that Riley is having with Aaron. And within that conversation, he is covering the uh, attack of the angel upon him, which happened at the end of episode four. And the conversation that he has during basically the entire next day, which there's so much symbolism in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But before we crack into episode five, I'm actually going to rewind a little bit to episode three. Because remember during episode three, I was like, the one thing I can't figure out is why Bev Keen would have poisoned Father Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I have been ruminating on this. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just been in the back of my head. Like, I can't figure it out. And I watched the episode again. Like, give me hints. And I don't exactly have it pieced together because for me, when... I was watching Father Paul get poisoned and die. It looked to me like he was shocked. Like he seemed scared, terrified, shocked, but also that he knew it was Bev that did it. Like he was looking towards her Mm. as he was having these like nasty, you know, foamy seizures and stuff happen. So my thought is at the beginning of episode three, that's when 
Bev realizes who Father Paul is and sees the photo of him on the wall. I think she was trying to test the miracle. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I don't know that in that moment, Father Paul knew that he needed to die in order to, quote unquote, like be reborn and resurrected Mm -hmm. and, you know, enter his final state, so to speak. I don't know that he knew he needed to do that, but somehow Bev thought that that was like her calling was to do that. But anyways, that's just my thought. It makes sense as to why she was so well prepared to deal with all of it. Yeah. You know, like we, I think we both commented on the fact that like she was very like, like she knew like, okay, Mary, you're doing this. Okay, uh, Serge, you're doing this. You know, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this. And it seems like, in retrospect, she had planned that whole scenario. Like, well, if he dies, here's how we take care of it. And if he lives, here's how we take care of it. And I need these people, you know, at the house at this time to execute this plan. Yeah, she had both planned it and also felt some sort of um, like personal satisfaction in being the person to do this thing. So I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure that there is like a more concrete you know, expression of this that kind of like draws on what I'm thinking about. But it took me a while. I I was just ruminating on it. Like nothing (laughs) doesn't mean anything in this show. Everything means something. Absolutely. So I said a double negative, but everything means something. So I thought this has to mean something. I have to. And of course, being me, I'm just like, well, I just got to watch it a thousand times (laughs) to figure it out. But yeah, I wanted to talk about that like before we really got well, super does, deep in there. That does factor into this episode, actually. Totally. Yeah. And that's why I was like, before we get too far, and also this episode is like full-on Bev Keen salty jealousy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So, like, keeping that in mind, that she was the instrument that allowed all of this to happen, allowed Father Paul to be resurrected, allowed Father Paul to have the power to turn Riley into an quote-unquote angel, And then not being given that same, like, air quotes, blessing. And then the, like, snide remarks that Father Paul makes the entire time to her had to have been just, like, soul-crushing for her. But we'll we'll definitely get into that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I just wanted to, like, not forget and make sure I was like, okay, this is a through line. So to start off, let's talk about gospel. Yeah. Is it gospels or singular? Well, I think the episode title was Gospel, okay. uh, the meaning of which is good news. And okay. I think that's why it was singular. It was used in its singular form. But in the Bible, there are four Gospels. Okay. So four in the official Bible. Now, there are other Gospels that are not, they're not canon. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if you say canon and I'm like, Marvel? Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe. Yeah, yeah, they're they're alternate universes. <laughs> yeah, there are other gospels. I mean, the accepted gospels in the Christian Bible, both Catholic and Christian Bible, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, and the names refer to the writers. Well, the air quotes writers, because when we talk about ancient texts, we're talking about who something is ascribed to, right. not necessarily a writer. Like you know, there's the whole question in classics, like 
was there actually a Homer? Right. You know, right. or was, or does Homer describe a collection of people collecting oral traditions that were eventually written down? Right. So you could say the same thing of the Gospels, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all apostles. Right. Um, and each Gospel is styled a little differently. We talked about this a lot in school. Like, you get different, you get the same overarching story mm -hmm. from each the story of jesus's life death and resurrection and then ascension into heaven but you get it from a different perspective and each of the gospel writers has their own style uh, okay. they talk a lot about john in this one mm -hmm. and john is considered kind of the most beautiful and the most poetic of all the gospel writers okay um just kind of the best, like the most writerly writer, I guess you could say, <laughs> which is probably why they chose they chose John um, okay. to to focus on. Also, Father Paul's first name is John. Yes. John yes. Paul Pruitt. Pruitt, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say Monsignor. I was like, that's not his last name. Yeah. That's so it's like breaking my brain for a second. <laughs> and he even says that in the episode, like my name, John yeah. Paul. Yeah. Um, and Paul is significant to you, by the way. Okay. Okay. So in the New Testament, the books of the New Testament are the four Gospels. Mm -hmm. And then you have what are called the epistles or the letters. Yeah. Um, okay. And nearly all of the letters are written by Paul to different either individuals or communities about Christianity. And okay. Paul was this, um, his original name was Saul. Uh-huh. And he was a Jewish man who was, I forget, like, part of this story, like, why he was traveling. Like, was he, like, the equivalent of a traveling salesman or something? I, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. He was traveling on the road to Damascus. Okay. And he was, like, basically witnesses, like, a miracle or a sign from God mm -hmm. on the road to Damascus. And God speaks to him. And says, like, you know, Saul, you are now Paul and okay. you will preach my gospel to the world. And so he set about traveling and writing all these letters about okay. about Jesus and about how to be a Christian. I think Father Paul actually says when in episode three, when he's talking about his journey. Yes, he does refer to Paul on the road to Damascus. Yes. Yeah, he's like, this is my road to Damascus. Yes. God spoke to me from this yeah. cave or whatever he called it cave yeah. temple when bev in this episode quotes hebrews uh -huh. what she is quoting is that's the shorthand for that book of the bible uh -huh. it's a letter from paul to the hebrews oh yeah interesting look at you with all your sweet bible knowledge well i mean again like <laughs> i'm just over here just watching this like wow this is great and juliet's <laughs> like no listen i've got receipts kindergarten <laughs> through senior year of high school Wow. <laughs> that that's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. See, in public school we were learning how to put glue in the top of your pencil box so that when it dried you could peel it up and it looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Paul, I've got the epistles, I've got all of the books in the New Testament, and I was like, one time I ate an eraser. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not that like public school is important. Yeah. But yeah. parochial school also important yeah, for other reasons. Different. For podcast reasons. Yeah. So that when you watch Midnight Mass you actually have some context yeah religious well, context and like you know different people i will say like different denominations mm. of christianity like learn this stuff differently because i know that like certain especially like 
Baptist sects have mm-hmm. like youth group, like as part of your your mm-hmm. multi-week church experience, like rather than learning in school, like you do like a youth group thing and you actually have to like memorize Bible passages. Like we never had to do that. Like mm-hmm. that was not like rote memorization of scripture was not part of what we learned. Mm-hmm. Like for us, it was more about like the context and like understanding like what are these books and why Why are they in what we read? And, like, maybe that's just, again, the product of the particular Catholic school I went to. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot more about, like, the context for what you were doing and not just, like, you're going to memorize these lines of this thing and, mm-hmm. like, be rewarded for being able to quote them back. Okay. Like, that was, like, not at all part of my experience. But I know that's, like, part of some people's mm-hmm. childhood experience. I went to youth group um, and we played kickball. Nice. There was like nice. a part where we would go through Bible passages, but I was I also didn't start going to youth group until I was in high school, and okay. it was mostly because my ex went there. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, this is a time that we can spend together on Wednesday nights. Yeah. It never really like was super crucial. I never really listened, but I digress. So this episode, as I mentioned before, is Riley's confession almost or like his retelling of the events that had happened to him the night and day prior to this evening so his literal death resurrection and death again i mean i would argue ascension ascension yeah wow that's a great story of the gospel yeah so and this one is also called gospel so we're bringing it all the way around yeah but he's basically giving his last story to aaron so he's telling her about his death, his attack. The angel attacked him. And then the conversation that he had with Father Paul, who basically is like trying to condition him the entire day. And at the beginning of the episode, prior to Riley doing all of this stuff with Aaron and talking to her and telling her all this, Father Paul has like this crazy mic drop, like yeah. sermon. Yeah, it's let's <laughs> let's talk about that scene a little bit. Yeah. So... Some of the framing for this episode is that, as we kind of have discussed the past two episodes, we're starting to see some of the fallout of the sort of atmosphere of miracle on the island uh, in that people are missing. Bull's mother comes to the sheriff to report him missing. Uh, Bull is the drug dealer that we saw go into the house in episode, I think it was episode one or two. I think it's the end of episode one, right? It might be two. Okay. Because one was a storm. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's two. You're right. It's two. You know, with the glowing eyes and he says hello and hears his name back. He goes into the house. We never see him again. Everybody else on the island starts to realize that Joe Colley is also missing. And of course, Riley is absent, which is interesting and complicated. And I really loved the treatment of that because you have Riley's family and Aaron all wondering where he is and each hoping that he's with the other and all of them trying to not think about the worst or confront their preconceived notions of what the worst would be. Is that that this person is hurt or dead somewhere or is it that he has relapsed? Mm-hmm. And I just I found that treatment so real, mm-hmm. honestly. You know, if you have somebody with addiction in your life, that sort of um, challenge to yourself sometimes if they go MIA for whatever reason, 
your sort of faith in them and your trust in them can be tested sometimes. Totally. Oh, have they relapsed? Have they gone back into addictive behavior, whatever their addiction may be? And we see Riley's father really struggle with his anger and his feelings around that. And I thought that was a really, uh, really real and honest portrayal of that. Yeah. As we were watching this, I was just thinking about what it would be like to live on an island of just over, I think it's 127 people. To live on an island with so few people, as far as we know, there's probably not a bar because the amount of people who drink is probably pretty small, not enough to like fund a bar. They barely have a general store. The sheriff's office is at the back of their general store. But nobody has cars. So having a person be missing and knowing that they weren't on the ferry is extra terrifying because there's only so many people on this island. You can't really get into a car wreck. Everybody rides bicycles. Nobody's going to hit you with their car because there aren't any. It'd be extra terrifying because you're like, I know that this person is somewhere on the island, but nobody is saying where they are. Right. And that's extra scary. Yeah, it is. It'd be really scary, especially for Bull's mom, who... Bull is a fairly small character in the show, but knowing that she's like everybody on the island hates him, they don't like me, even though I work and work and work, nobody likes him. So somebody knows where he is, but nobody's saying. And then Joe Colley being sort of this fallen figure and nobody really likes him. And then Riley being the former addict, the person struggling with their sobriety. Well, I mean, I guess he's not struggling with sobriety, but he is trying to maintain his sobriety from, you know, having a lot of bad stuff happen to him. And all these three people kind of like are people where nobody would question if they disappeared or like be surprised that they disappeared. It just so happens that those three are the ones that are missing at the beginning of the episode. It's really interesting because it really speaks to sort of a larger question of like, what sort of value and priority do we place on people, you know, um, people in potential peril uh, Mm -hmm. based on who they are? Like, I find it really interesting that, you know, the sheriff is looking into this Mm -hmm. and, you know, says to Bull's mother, like, I believe you. I'm trying to figure this out. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do find it interesting that, like, nobody else other than Riley's parents and Aaron notice that Riley's gone. Right. Nobody else notices that Joe Colley is gone other than the sheriff Mm -hmm. and Riley, obviously, in the prior episode. Right. And I think that comes back to one of those things where it's like, you know, do we do we discount people in potential peril? I mean, the answer is yes, we do. Mm -hmm. You know, we we tend to as a society, discount people in potential peril if they have a history of addiction or behavior that society deems as unacceptable or less acceptable, they aren't given as much priority sort of in the assistance or in the criminal justice system. And yeah. this was like a, a an interesting way to touch on that. And with such a small community, it makes it really easy to magnify that issue absolutely with what we're seeing it's like well we only have a handful of main characters and in a bigger city people get swallowed up all the time i mean not to um you know try and bring levity to that situation that's not what i mean to do but like people disappear in big cities and it ends up not being as big of a deal by both virtue of 
there being so many people that disappear. And also in big cities, it's like, do we even have the resources to investigate these things? Especially people who are on the fringes of society or maybe are not in a great socioeconomic state or they're addicts or they're sick or disabled or something like that. So the choice of setting in this is like, awesome because it magnifies these issues because you would think, oh, well, it's a small town. Nobody cares. It's like, no, everybody cares way more. Yeah. And so like we're magnifying the fact that nobody cares about Joe Mm -hmm. and nobody's looking for Bull. And Bull's been missing for like several days at this point. I don't know how long there is between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, but... 40 days. Okay. So he's been gone a while. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure Ash Wednesday was at the beginning of the series, and yes. now we're at Good Friday. Yeah. And so he's been gone for a month and 10 days. That's a long time. Yeah. For, and for nobody to be like, hey, where's Bull, you know, because he's a drug dealer. And obviously, he only comes to the island sometimes. It's basically to, you know, deal drugs. But still, like, this is important. This is special. Yeah. So... In this show, we're seeing the example of, you know, these are three white men. Mm -hmm. But I can't help but think about, you know, all of the missing and murdered indigenous women. Like when we talk about, like, who's prioritized among the missing or or the lost, you know, I could see a really, really interesting parallel. And maybe, maybe hopefully, you know because society is so used to thinking about white men, you know, perhaps I hope that other people could watch this and and sort of make that connection um, about who we prioritize. Totally. So then we kind of enter into the Good Friday sermon that Father Paul delivers. And that comes from it's at the beginning. And then we revisit that at the end because that sermon has new meaning by the time we get to the end of the episode. So can you give some, lend us some of your Catholic insight into some of the things that we're seeing that are different during this sermon? Oh, yeah. So the Good Friday service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, first of all, this particular service happens in the evening, which is not actually that unusual for a Good Friday service. Like you would possibly have an evening service for Good Friday. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was an evening service with no morning mass mm-hmm. um, leads the town folk and uh, all of us to say, hmm, wonder why <laughs> that is that we can't have a service during the daylight. Mm-hmm. But um, moreover, because it's Good Friday, uh, we see the church as normal. And although this church doesn't have many statues, it's a pretty bare bones church, we do see a black cloth draped over the crucifix behind the altar. And that is a very traditional Lenten practice in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So on Good Friday, the church like the physical space goes into like this period of mourning and solitude so actually i think yes i'm pretty sure this actually starts on palm sunday that after palm sunday because palm sunday mass is the reading of the passion Uh it's very long it's like that's that's one of those masses that you know is going to be longer because they read the entire passion story which is like pretty long you know it's all (laughs) the way from palm sunday through the story of the last supper which of course you know is the communion story and Mm -hmm. then to jesus's crucifixion okay and i think it's after palm sunday 
all of the statues in the church are covered with mm-hmm. cloth and the crucifix is also covered with cloth. And that is because, like, you're supposed to be in this period of, like, mourning and prayer and solitude. Like, while Jesus is dead and you're waiting on the resurrection, you're supposed to be contemplating all of this. Mm -hmm. And what happens traditionally is that for your Easter Vigil service, so Easter Vigil is, like, high Catholic drama. It's, like, the most theatrical of nearly all of the Catholic services. It's pretty intense. Like, if you have a church that does the whole thing, it's, like, it's a lot. There's fire. There's light. There's darkness. There's... What? There's fire. Yeah. There's no music. Then there's music. But, um... <laughs> is this a stage play? I mean, it's a stage play that everybody's a part of. It's okay. participatory theater. Oh. Participatory religious theater. <laughs> there are processions. There are about a bajillion readings. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. There are, like... There's a uh, there's the short Easter Vigil and then there's the long Easter Vigil. Like there's the shorter version of like the number of readings that you have to do for each Easter Vigil, which is still more than a regular mass. <laughs> but then if you want to go like be super extra, you can do even more. Wow. You're yeah. like, I'm extra Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel really sad. Yeah. <laughs> but so the whole the whole like thing with the covering of the statues is that Easter Vigil, there's this moment where... So half of the service is in darkness, uh, only by candlelight. And there is no organ music. Like the music can only be a cappella. No light. It's very somber. And then there's this, this moment, which is sort of the moment of resurrection in the story. And it's supposed to be like this big, beautiful moment. And like the lights come on in the church and you can use the organ again and you can... Uh, you can sing Alleluia again because all through Lent you can't say Alleluia, which fundamentally changes parts of the Mass. Like you have to substitute other words. Dang. Um, you can say Alleluia and they, depending on, again, the level of drama in the church that you're in, they rip all of the cloths off of the statues. Dang. And so like the church comes like back alive. So that's why the crucifix was covered in that scene. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It is a lot. Wow. It's very long too. It's like Lent is like, is like Easter. It's like the lead up to Easter. You're like conditioning for Easter. Pretty much. Yes. And then like the week, yeah. like Palm Sunday all the way through Easter Sunday, you're like extra intense. Yeah, like, you're in like hardcore conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, okay, I'm going to do the marathon. Yeah. And then you get to the marathon and they rip the cloths off everything. You're like, yes, finally we're back. We're here. And then I can pretend not to be Catholic for the other 10 months of the year. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we're so conditioned, especially as Americans, I think, to think about Christmas as Mm -hmm. being, like, the biggest Christian holiday. But if you talk to people, like, who are not just, like, American culturally Christian, Mm because, you know, that's America, Mm -hmm. um, but who are, you know, believers, Uh they will tell you that it's Easter. You know, mm-hmm. Easter is the biggest holiday, the biggest feast day for Christianity. And it's it's Holy Week. It's mm-hmm. not the week of Christmas or whatever. Like right. it is it is the week between Palm Sunday and Easter that is the most holy, the most important for Christianity. Isn't it weird that we get a lot of time off for Christmas, but we don't get any time off for Easter or only get like one day off for Easter, well, at least in school? I mean, you know why, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's capitalism. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we had like 
I think it was every, so from Christmas Eve all the way through, like depending on the calendar year, obviously, but all the Uh way through um, New Year's. I think we had that entire time off. Mm -hmm. Public school kids, obviously. Because we were getting bikes and not going to church. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) At least that was me and my family. We yeah. didn't ever go to church. I think, I think we had Christmas Eve through New Year's. But, like, the timing of spring break was always, like, highly contentious. Oh. Because, like, a lot of schools do spring break a little earlier. Right. Or they do spring break, like, the same time every year. But because Easter is not, like, Christmas is always December 25th. Easter right. is not always the it's same day. It's crazy. Yeah. It seems like it goes all, like, up and down. Like Yes, because it depends on the first full moon of spring. Well, I did not know that yeah. until right now. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I was like, sometimes it's on like the 10th. Sometimes yeah. it's at the end of March. Has to do with the moon. Wow. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem very Jesus-like. <laughs> Jesus is like, mm, let me check my moon watch. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I think he like licks his finger and puts it to the air mm, seems like this is a good time to be crucified yeah uh, i'm not making light of this <laughs> oh boy sorry yeah. to all of our catholic listeners that i'm making light of this uh, it, i like i'm not religious and i obviously respect anybody's religious tradition so just know that i don't hate catholics i don't hate catholicism <laughs> i hate the crusades anyways um <laughs> let's talk about so we were going to talk about the sermon. Yes, it's sorry. We got God, sorry. Wow. We got on a on a we got statue ca- covering Easter caught up on religious participatory theater, Catholic Diversion. participatory theater. <laughs> yeah, that homily was dude. dude. We are we are all <laughs> Dr. Sarah and her mom in that scene, or at least I was. Yeah, for sure. So Father Paul starts like he starts innocuously enough you know it's like oh it's good friday why do we call it good friday when it's the day of the crucifixion like that's normal yeah that's a that's a that's a great question yeah. you know <laughs> that is a great great question and then as we have seen in the past couple episodes he gets into this religious fervor and he starts talking about the army of god Holy and like crap. spiritual warfare and oh my god yeah yikes it is so intense watching him work basically mm-hmm. um i'm not a religious person i've been to church like a handful of times and i've never and obviously this is filmed in a you know cinematic way so we're we're drawn in we're invested in these characters but even me little old you know agnostic teresa is like feeling moved i'm like Mm -hmm. holy crap like i'm i'm being drawn in he's he's doing his best work at drawing he's riling up the his uh parishioners and he's pulling them in with extremely like militant words yeah that was really interesting to me because and i get you know um everyone's experience of catholicism is different and i have said repeatedly like a lot of your experience depends on the type of church that you grew Mm -hmm. up in and the type of church community and there are many different types and like vibes of church of catholic churches and my experience does not speak for all of them i will say that like I was having, like I say, like, I am Dr. Sarah in that moment and her mother. To me, 
that type of language and that type of rhetoric is not at all the language of like Catholicism that I experienced growing up. Like to me, that was way more evangelical. Mm-hmm. The style of preaching, like it felt like a, a fire and brimstone revival preacher yeah. to me at least. Now, yeah. there are probably people who grew up in Catholicism who may have had a pastor or a priest like that, but that experience is so foreign to me mm-hmm. and it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just like, ooh, yeah, that, that, no. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm also like a major pacifist. Yeah. So, like, any type of, um, like militant language, like, I have a whole thing with like militant language or the sort of language of, war or combat being applied to other things it's why i hated marching band actually because i felt like it was indoctrinating teenagers to be good soldiers yeah it's like baby soldiers it's like Like baby war yeah it's like being baby soldiers um i hated it yeah and that's tough yeah yeah it's why i only marched one year i was like i just want to play the drums i don't understand this whole snap to attention thing it scares me yeah and the marching part yeah like, don't don't like it yeah don't like it but um yeah so the um militant language to me was just very foreign yeah and i was just like this is not you know um but that type of language like as we have seen that kind of um it riles people up yeah it gets them into a fervor yeah it's weird it's because effective. it even if you don't agree with the overall message, when somebody is speaking to you like this yeah. and and your your adrenaline is pumping and you start having like floods of dopamine in your brain, even if a little bit of it applies to you or you only agree with half of what he's saying or even a quarter of what he's saying, you're still amped up by the yeah. speech. And also, although his language is militant, he is directly referring to the congregation as being the army of God. Yeah. So he is saying you have a place in this army. I'm getting chills just talking about this. Yeah. I would love to know, and I'm sure somebody has studied this. There has got to be something like psychologically in our brains that makes that style of speaking and that type of language have an effect on us. uh, I'm a part of a book club that is doing um, cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. And one of the chapters, a shorter chapter that we're just getting ready to discuss, uh, it's called The Euphoria of Hate. Uh It's about Nazi Germany, that chapter. But it is about how People who would not think of themselves as particularly hateful or militant can get riled up in that euphoria, in yeah. that language. So I was thinking a lot about that during that scene and yeah. like how dangerous mm-hmm. that is, how you can be swept up into something that you wouldn't necessarily agree to or agree to be a party to because of whatever happens in our brains when right. someone speaks like that. And it's really interesting to me that Mildred decides Dr. Sarah's mom is like, no, I'm out. And at first, she do- it doesn't seem like she, like Dr. Sarah's the one's like, uh, oh, hell no. Like yeah. she's looking around like, um, is anybody else hearing what, this, yeah. what I'm hearing? But then towards the end, when he's talking about the army of God and the works that they'll do together, Mildred like sits up in disbelief, like this man a man that I knew at one time is speaking in this way, and I I don't know who that is. Yeah. That's, I don't know him. <laughs> I think that is so fascinating, too, that 
we see Dr. Sarah visibly reacting to this, but the person who says it is the person who throughout this series has not been in their right mind. Mm -hmm. And she is the person who, because of her miracle, because of the miracle that was especially given to her, it's so fascinating, has the most clarity and the most um, clearness of mind to understand that what is happening is not right. Yeah. And for somebody so important to her, I mean, they exchanged a very special moment when he came to give her communion in episode four. And you can clearly tell that they mean a lot to one another. And I she still is the wonder one. If he's Sarah's father. <laughs> She's the one who's like, no, you will never go back. That is not yeah. the man I knew. That is not the church. That's not my church. And somebody who's very pious and very dedicated to receiving communion. And then she's like, especially on Good Friday, you know, yeah, such an important holy day. She's like, uh-uh, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. I'm out. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I want to see where that goes. Because all of a sudden she has, well, she and... Dr. Sarah, because of what happens in this episode, are perhaps going to be emerging in the last two episodes in more of a protagonist role. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly I think Aaron Mm -hmm. will be, but I wonder about those two in particular, given how this episode ends, Mm -hmm. if they will need to step up a little more. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little bit of an aside so that I don't forget this, but I was thinking about this the other day. How do you, what do you think about this particular iteration of vampire lore in so many um, vampire, different vampire stories or different iterations? um, I'm just going to use the Anne Rice one because it's like fresh in my brain right now. But what's commonly, the common practice of like, you know, air quotes vampires is drain the blood of the person that you're turning, then give them your blood, and then voila, they're a vampire. Yeah. That's the typical way of doing the thing in so many different stories. In this one, though, and maybe this is a fact, like this is a way that, because Father Paul didn't know exactly how to do it until Bev Keen poisoned him, but he gives everybody the blood first the vampire blood and not in true blood fashion where it like makes them high or whatever right right it restores them to a more perfect version of themselves because if you look at the Anne rice vampire they are frozen in time at the time that they were you know changed in this particular iteration he feeds them the blood before and they hit rewind to the best version of themselves and then in riley's case it was the opposite. So Father Paul being dosed with vampire blood, then dying is what gave him it like so he rewound and then he became immortal or, you know, at least allergic to sunlight. We, I guess we don't really know that he's immortal. We're just assuming We're assuming, that. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like a vampire. Yeah. But in Riley's case, he was the opposite. Mm-hmm. So like he is frozen in time, at the time that he was changed. He was not rewound to a better version of himself. He still has gray in his hair. I think that was very deliberate. Yeah. So what did you think about that departure from, like, the the traditional vampire changing scenario? Do you think it has more meaning in this because of the whole, like, religiosity of it all? Oh, yeah. I think certainly the story could work 
on a more traditional vampire you know path mm-hmm. so to speak like this sort of Anne Rice path and I mean certainly Anne Rice is a great parallel because she infuses so much uh, religion mm-hmm. into, and so much Catholicism very specifically actually into uh, her books but yeah I think some of this is tied to really wanting to really wanting to blur those lines for Father Paul and Bev very specifically of you know this is vampirism but it's paralleling Christ's journey. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it must be from God. I mean, and you've heard me say, like, every time we watch an episode and somebody's talking about God speaking to them, I'm like, is it God <laughs> or is it Satan? <laughs> is it an angel or is this actually a demon? Yeah. Which I like. Mm-hmm. I like about that because you're seeing these people blinded by faith and by their sort of good faith in this is a miracle and not something more sinister. So I think that, yeah, that I think the the sort of vampire lore in this one is written to support that, mm-hmm. to make it even more sticky in terms of like, you know, all of this is going to parallel Jesus's story of death, resurrection, you know, all of that, it's going to parallel uh, communion. Like there's so much with the eat of my body, drink of my blood thing, mm-hmm. um, which there certainly is in other vampire lore too, but they're really leaning into that hard uh, because it's harder for the characters to then distinguish whether this is something good or bad. Because oh, yeah. obviously if it's like, you know, if it's paralleling communion, surely it must be good. Mm-hmm. But the sort of like, and they haven't gotten into this a lot in the show, but the sort of like true, the devil or Satan or Lucifer of the Bible is a trickster and mm-hmm. is a great deceiver. And the whole like biblical view of Satan is like that he's a great liar and that he comes in the form of something good and Mm -hmm. that's how evil gets you is in the guise of something good and so that's what i keep watching for even though they haven't explicitly talked about that a lot in the show and i'm so fascinated that you brought that up because when i watched that i didn't even think of satan once Mm -hmm. i simply was thinking about the bad things that we do or allow or sanction in the name of god yeah and i'm agnostic so like when it comes to Satan or the bad or the yin to the yang, I don't necessarily think that there is one. I just always think about people. I think that if there's something spiritual, like it's so far beyond our own understanding that there's nothing I can do or say that would appease that being. But I never think about the bad. So when I'm watching this show, I'm thinking, look at all of these terrible, atrocious things that this island is allowing to slip by Mm -hmm. in the name of, well, we are God's army. Well, we are, you know, I'm a holy warrior. And so we're letting all of this bad stuff happen, or we are justifying these bad actions that we're doing, or we're allowing those things to slip through our fingers because God has a plan. And they keep saying that over and over and over again. And so I'm like, wow, but well, I mean, bad people are bad. And people who allow things to happen in the name of something higher simply because of that and not for any other reason, like that's the true horror. And I know we're only on episode (laughs) five. We still have two more episodes to go. But 
For me, that's what was really scary. Yeah. Um, The conversation that Riley has with Father Paul, either in episode three or four, where he was talking about his own journey and the fact that he killed a girl Mm -hmm. and he revisits that same guilt on this. It's like, you say that God has a plan, but yet I killed that girl. How does that factor into God's plan? And then Father Paul brings up the fact that his sister Alice had died of polio and he himself struggled. How does that factor into God's plan? And the way that it factored into God's plan is it drove him into the church. And I don't know if his name was John Paul always. Maybe that was like, you know, his new name when he became Father Paul. But that is what I am looking for. So to hear you say like, Satan, trickster, demon, I'm like, wow, that gives this whole, like a a whole new facet. There's something to grab onto if you have a religious background, and there's something to grab onto even if you don't. Yeah. And I should say, too, like the whole, like, Satan as liar, trickster, deceiver thing is not exclusive to Christianity. Sure. Like, it's the most accessible, but certainly in, like... So many different faith traditions, there is, you know, a trickster god who may not be, you know, the embodiment of evil in the same way the sort of devil of the Bible is, but is a manipulator and is a liar and deceives you into thinking like you're doing something good when actually you are doing something to affect, you know, a a worse fate, you know, and there are ideas in... um, in paganism and in other, you know, mystical religions about, you know, opening yourself up. Well, we talked about this in our host episode, actually, the oh, yeah. sort of idea of, you know, if you are lifting the veil, you, yeah. you know, even with the best intentions, you do open yourself up to other forces, you know, right. and other forces can sneak in and can manipulate and all of that. No matter if you believe or not. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Even in spite of your disbelief. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So pivot a little bit. Let's talk about Bev Keen in this episode. I have two things that I want to touch on about Bev because she's not in this episode a whole lot. But the instances that she is in there, if you're not paying close attention, maybe you'll miss out on this. But she has done so much in the name of Father Paul, and she's done so much for, you know, air quotes, the island and the church. But in this episode, we finally see Bev jealous that mm-hmm. Father Paul has chosen Riley. And whether or not that choice was on purpose, because Riley kind of wanders into the <laughs> rec center when the angel is there refilling his, like, decanter. I don't know what that's called. Is there a special name for the little wine vase? I mean, it's just like a decanter. Yeah, yeah. Riley wanders in, and of course, the angel, being hungry, attacks Riley. But Father Paul doesn't stop the angel, nor could he. I don't think that he has the capability of stopping him. But Bev comes in, and she's obviously super salty about what's happening, about the fact that Riley's been chosen, that Riley is now a vampire slash immortal or a warrior in God's army, whatever. And she's done so much. And there are these like little like comments that Father Paul makes to her. Like, I'm working through God. Like God tells me who and God will tell you who to share this with. And she's like, well, why not me? She's being a pick me girl. <laughs> she is. She is. But did you find it abundantly clear that he was like, well, God tells me who to pick, blah, blah, blah. To me, it was very abundantly clear, and this is not your role. Yes. Like, totally. Period. Like, he ne- he never explicitly says that, 
but it was pretty obvious to me. Like, this is not, you're not, you're not on the short list here. So in discussing that part of it, do you think that Father Paul invested extra time and energy in Riley because he always wanted Riley to be the one that he gave this gift to first? Like, there are certain people that he invests more time in. Obviously, Mildred, he's going there daily to give her her communion and keep her on schedule, which we know that they have a special relationship. But why would he spend the extra time on Riley and, like, do all of this stuff for him and and get him to be able to do the meetings on the island if he didn't want one-on-one time with him so that he could groom him for this next part. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's very obvious from the first episode that he cared for Riley and and it's hard when you're talking about a priest in Catholicism. I don't I want to be very clear. I do not think it was anything sexual or anything like that. Absolutely not. I don't think so. Um I just like feel like I have to get that out of the way because we're talking about a Catholic priest yeah. and a boy that he mentored. Totally. I don't think it was that. I do think that perhaps based on his speech in this episode that at one point Father Paul Pruitt <laughs> saw himself in a young Riley and saw maybe this young person is destined for a religious life. He's mm-hmm. smart, he's perceptive, he has faith, you mm-hmm. know. I think maybe he was thinking, oh, maybe he is going to go down a similar path as I am. And in both of their returning to the island, certainly I think that Father Paul saw a moment, a potential for some kind of great healing or redemption in Riley. Even if it's not like Riley's going to become a priest, I think having experienced his own uh, he refers to it as a purification. Mm -hmm. You know, he says, here is this person who is very special, who is very smart, who I think has the capacity to benefit greatly from this. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that that capacity is fostered and nurtured until whatever end God determines. Mm-hmm. And which is why I don't think he stopped the angel. I think he was like, oh, yeah, this is this. Okay. This See? works. Yeah. This fits. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he also thinks that the angel is, you know, a holy being. So far be it from him to stop the angel, you know. But also, I see the conversation that he has, which some of Hamish Linklater's best acting in this. When he's screaming at him to tell him how he really feels about Father Paul not feeling guilt or remorse for killing Joe Cawley. And Riley tells him that he feels jealous, that he lacks all of those things. And it's like, oh, so powerful. But I'm seeing Father Paul take advantage of his addiction. Oh, absolutely. Like, there is a part where Sturge comes in and gives his blood. And Sturge, like what you mentioned before, is like, Sturge, he's a simple man. He is a fisherman. He runs the ferry. He's very work-oriented. It seems like a lot of this stuff is maybe things that he's never thought of or, like, higher-level stuff that really, like, he's having forced onto him or, like, persuaded into doing these things without really understanding what's happening. And basically, it's like tempting an alcoholic with a beer. And they do that with the blood with Riley. And Riley just, like, 
I mean, he's also a vampire. He feels this carnal hunger. And so he can't say no. He grabs the goblet and he drinks the blood, regardless of what all of the stuff that Father Paul is waxing poetic about, you know, taking the blood of Christ and all, like flesh and blood and all this stuff. Riley's just like, I'm hungry. This is the thing that's going to sate my hunger. I am going to drink it and I'm going to chug it. And he chugs the whole thing. But the fact that it looks like wine in a goblet that he's drinking, it's just so much parallel there with Riley being an addict. And so I wonder if the AA meetings that Father Paul is having with him, although, you know, they do have some insight for Riley and it does seem to help him a little bit if he is working through those meetings to kind of like soften Riley to the eventuality of him being brought to. Oh, to prepare him for the inevitable. And also Mm -hmm. Father Paul learning from Riley, learning from those moments of vulnerability. What do I need to say to get Riley on board with this? And eventually to get others on board too. Exactly. What do I need to do in order to both prepare him and get the best possible plan of action to get him on my side. Yeah. And Riley, at least, you know, makes him think that he's on his side. Like, there's a moment when he asks, do you feel at peace? And Riley says yes, which I'm not exactly sure that Riley does feel at peace. I don't think he does. Not at that moment anyways. Maybe later on in the episode where he's on the boat. I think that is his moment of peace. Yeah, I agree. But I think he's just like, let me out of here. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I need to go do some stuff before... Yeah, but super, super powerful moment from Father Paul, that whole thing. And, you know, in a show where there's so much exposition, it could be easy to be like, wow, this is just so wordy and long. (laughs) But I feel like it keeps you um, engaged really, really well. Yeah, and some of that is in the filmmaking, too. The way that in those tense scenes, like the way they're framing the shots, because like, a good chunk of this episode and some of the best scenes are two guys sitting in folding chairs in a very plain room. Yeah. And yet they're able to do things with the cutting and with the perspective, like where the camera is and all of that to not just keep it visually interesting, but to have the camera angles and the framing support the intensity of the scene. So like kudos to both Mike Flanagan and the cinematographer on this for using the visuals to support the exposition in the story. For sure. I wanted to talk about the same scene that we're kind of talking about. Father Paul talks about not feeling guilt for Joe Colley. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is something to be said about Father Paul filtering the sin of Joe Colley by drinking all of his blood into the miracle of being immortal and like realizing his immortality or realizing um, what he has to do in order to continue. I mean, I think it's bullshit if I'm being quite (laughs) honest. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a crappy justification. And, you know, I, I mentioned as we were watching this, like there's so much about vampirism in general, like as a horror trope, mm-hmm. uh, there's so much to be said about consent when you talk yes. about vampirism. 
to me, this was so much about the justification for lack of consent or the mm-hmm. justification for bad behavior. You know, this is the, equi- you know, it's the, it's the midnight mass equivalent to, well, she was dressed like this mm-hmm. or, you know, or they were, they were drunk or, you know, whatever. I don't buy it. You can see how easily people can reframe things so that they're less harmful to themselves but it doesn't make it doesn't make joe collie less dead yeah you know he's dead he's gone and he was on his own path to redemption yeah he was it's so interesting that joe wanders into father paul's home and is murdered and all of his blood drunk well i guess yeah he was murdered shoved he hits his head then he drinks all of his blood yeah Riley wanders into the community center and the angel attacks him and he becomes immortal. Yeah. Joe Colley is not afforded that same, yeah. you know, grace or special gift or whatever. People wandering in through doors, though. Dang. I know. <laughs> Everybody keeps your doors. Your door. But it's, it's also, I think, a thematic line. But Father Paul tells Bev... Throw the doors open. Yep. Uh, there's a whole quote that he does. I don't know Bible quotes. I'm terrible at that. But he tells her, throw the doors open and keep them open. And then I think he says something like, as the gates, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. I don't remember. But <laughs> he wants the doors open. Now his trick is revealed to enough people. You know, they can't all keep the secret. And the people who are important to this place already know right so what does he care about all the rest of the people finding out the mayor already knows the sheriff you know he's one person but i have the mayor i have bev keen i have riley i have myself i have you know several people in positions of power now throw open the doors let them see let them in because i'm going to make them into an army of gods so yeah who cares yeah. so do you think that Father Paul really thinks that the angel is an angel? Like, does he not know? Or has he convinced himself that it's not? Here's the question, I guess. Yes, I think he's convinced himself. Um, because I think the fact that all this entire experience has been so couched in faith for him, I don't know that he has the capacity at this point in his journey with this, with the angel vampire whatever Mm -hmm. um i don't know that he yet has the capacity to consider that it's anything but Mm -hmm. an act of god but i also i I raised this question in another episode and we don't yet know how do he and the angel communicate Mm -hmm. yeah and like what to what is the extent of that communication right is it like some vampire stories where you when you share a blood bond with another vampire, you either can hear their like communicate telepathically or maybe feel their feelings like an empath situation or something like that? Mm-hmm. Are they just conversing, you know, in right. a way that is pretty analogous to human conversation? Like we don't know. We've seen him speak to the angel we have not heard the angel speak back but we do know that they're communicating somehow Mm -hmm. so what i don't know is if father paul has simply convinced himself that this is all an act of god Mm -hmm. 
Or, and, and, or if the angel is somehow reinforcing that messaging, Mm. you know, like, is the angel in his head saying like, yeah, army of God, great. I'm an angel and that's what God wants. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Good job. Again, with like the Satan thing. I'm like, you know. Yeah. Like, what is this angel telling him? Um, And how is that factoring into his actions? And I think that is extra interesting given what Mildred says Mm -hmm. when she says, like, this is not the man I knew. This is not my church. I mean, that to me is like a clue. Like, oh, yeah, there is something nefarious going on here. And so I'm like, hmm, is the angel somehow in his ear or in his head? Yeah. Well, he says that he hears his voice stronger every day, but he does mention that it's God. But, I mean, what is an angel but a messenger of right. God? So exactly. Were you, to kind of jump to the end of the episode, were you surprised that Riley's journey is over? Considering we have two more episodes? Yes and no. Okay. On the one hand, yes, because I had just said in the last episode, you know, like, Riley is our protagonist. Yeah. He's he's the guy that we're with, and now he is no more. Yeah. The flip side of that is knowing that he had been made a vampire, because when we come into this episode, there's a good third of it, I would say, where we don't know Riley's fate yet. You know, mm-hmm. we're assuming like, no, he's not He's not dead. Like, I, I was pretty convinced of that. Like, he didn't die at the end of episode four. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of wondering, like, did he get away? Did he, you know, we don't know for a while. And I was kind of convinced that if he is made a vampire, I don't know that he would abide by it, mm-hmm. given kind of his interactions with Father Paul and his reflections on the church and all of that. And so I figured there would be some kind of walking into the sunlight or something, especially once we knew he could burn in the sunlight. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could kind of see it coming during this episode, not before, certainly. Yeah. Well, now Aaron is just completely alone. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a That's tough a scene. bummer. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.